Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hey, C. Todd. Thanks so much for being on the podcast with us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Melissa. It's great to be here. So I've known you for quite a few years. I think we met at Mind the Product for the first time. And then as I came up to Boston a lot, you know, working at Harvard and with Athena Health, we ran into each other so much. So I'm excited to be moving up your way later this year. Yeah, I look forward to having you back up in uh, Massachusetts. And hopefully this pandemic will be over and we'll be able to enjoy a beer or wine outside somewhere in Cambridge like we did last time. Oh, that would be so nice. I can't wait. I'm just like, I'm ready to get out of this house (laughs) one day. So I'm so excited for everybody to learn more about you, more about your books. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what kind of product leadership you do? And we'll get into talking about your new book too. Yeah, great. So thank you. So I recently started a new new job as VP of product and experience at Openly, which is an insurance tech company, initially based in the Boston area, but now we're like most companies have gone remote. So we we have employees all across the United States. And I've been in product for a while. Uh, I'm no spring chicken in, in this regard. And one of my first PM jobs, I had this you know, crazy platform that was like this half a million dollar machine with some hardware and software and chemistry and biology. And so the levels of complexity was crazy, but I actually really liked it, enjoyed that sort of trying to bring those things together. And so a variety of different product jobs and even um, design jobs along the way have sort of led me to here where I'm at now, leading a team of product managers and designers here at this place called Openly. That's great. And then how'd you get into product? Yeah. So that reference I mentioned before, the product manager, basically leading that product, she quit and went to become a whitewater rafting instructor in Maine. <laughs> and wow. There was a gap in there was nobody leading that product at all for a while. And I guess I was one of the more knowledgeable engineers and the sales team kept coming to me. Maybe I was friendly enough to them. Or I was able to explain things to them to the point where one of the sales reps said, Hey, you really should take Robin's old job. You're kind of doing half of it. So I went to the, at the time, all the product managers reported to the marketing manager. I went to Rich, the marketing manager, and I said, So can I have Robin's job? (laughs) I've I've been told I'm doing half of it. And he kind of chuckled and said, Yeah, I think you are. And then he said, Well, we'll have you interview with everything. But he's like, I think you're a shoe in. But at the same rate, I can't just immediately hire you. I'm going to have to put you through the interview process that we're putting everyone else through. So yeah, I did that. And and eventually I got hired as a formerly a product manager. So it was a, certainly quite crazy because not only was I managing or inheriting this really complex product to manage, I actually said to Rich, I said, this is my first product manager job. I'm sure I've been like kind of doing it quasi on the side, helping the sales team, but that's only one small part of what product management is. I've never taken a marketing class. I've never taken a business class. You know, Can you help me with this? And he's like, don't worry. I'll teach you everything you need to know. I've been doing product management for the last 15 years in the biotech space. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, awesome. Two weeks later, Rich gets asked to leave the company. Oh my God. <laughs> so I basically had four weeks. I had two weeks left and basically had four weeks with this guy to you know, teach me everything about product management that I need to know. And it was kind of nuts because I spent the next probably six months to maybe a year 
without a direct boss. And I was at a company that was pretty large and the person above me was like senior vice president of sales and marketing. So oh, wow. I, uh, yeah, I just barely ever had any time from him or, or guidance or anything. I think my product overall was like maybe a five or $6 million product you know, annual revenue. And then he was dealing with like a, you know, $350 million portfolio we had to manage. So I was such a small part. <laughs> he had very little time for me, but it was interesting to try just having to learn, like, how do you communicate across all sorts of different departments and stakeholders and personalities and, and really try to be that glue, which a lot of what product managers are. So it was a very formative experience that, you know, a little bit of masochism, but like, I kind of enjoyed it. When I look back, I learned a lot in those two years because it was really just such a, a fire pit of learning. I, I treaded water for a long, long time for a good year before finally actually starting to maybe do a couple strokes and actually, you know, make headway. A lot of fun. And coming doing only quote unquote software does seem like it's easier just because the bar was so much higher. The levels of complexity were so much higher in, in my past. Not to say that software is not complex, but it just feels a lot less complex because software is a man-made thing. When you add in like chemistry and biology into the mix, it's like, whoa, I got this stuff that's really even more unpredictable. Holy crap. So it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed product and, and learning how to, how to do it. And also the evolution over the last 15 or so years I've been doing this. It's really seen a drastic change, especially thanks to people like you, right? Teaching <laughs> it, you know, having podcasts with it, you know, writing books, all that stuff has been super cool to see over the last decade or so. Yeah. What do you think is the, the biggest change you've seen in product management over the last, last decade, like you said? One of the biggest things is the legitimacy of the position. Previously, I think a lot of people looked at product management as a glorified project manager, as just somebody who was supposed to just get stuff done for this product. And yes, we're all effectively shepherds of our product, but I think it didn't have maybe like UX and design has finally has a seat at the table. I think products is, you know, in the last decade or so, it really has a bigger seat at the table. You're seeing more chief product officer roles. You're seeing more VPs of product be reporting straight to the CEO or, or straight to the C-suite. There's much more of that direct line of product being a discipline that people need to hire and grow in their organizations. I say that's the macro trend I've seen over the last 15 years. Yeah, I have definitely seen that too. And I think a lot of the the students who come through Harvard to the MBAs, I think it's like 30% of them want to be product managers eventually which is great, which is huge. But, you know, nobody used to go get their MBA for that before. So mm -hmm. I, I love that we're finally having a role for us and we don't have to justify our existence over and over again. Yeah, because even some of my students, so I teach at a different MBA program and similar things. Some of them are like, when they take my class, I call it data-driven innovation, but it's basically a variation of product management without getting into the, like we, ha we have a couple of, of modules around product management specifically, but it really is, how do I get them, train them to, to show what is it like to be a product manager? And they kind of get a taste of it without framing it as product management. And some yeah. of them are like, I want to do this. This is, this is so cool. <laughs> do you also get people who go, I don't want to do this because I've been finding that a lot lately. Yeah. I've got a few students who are like, okay, this is definitely not for me to like, and it's good, right? Like, you know, that mm -hmm. there's, if it's not for you, that's great. And that's a good, one of the things, the great things about any education is that you can learn like, oh, I can test the water to see if this is something I want to do or not. I've definitely had some students like, you know what? Nope, I'm going into sales or nope, I'm going into marketing. I'm glad I, I did this because I don't want that position. Yeah. And that's great. That's what I get too, which I love because, you know, nobody wants to go to a job and then spend a year hating it or things like that. Plus, yeah. you, you're probably in there going, is it me? Is it the job? Am I not doing it right? You know, what's going on? So 
I love that, you know, we both get to teach students about product management and and what they can do going forward. It's so nice that they're actually putting these into schools now. Mm. Yeah. And there's another degree program at the school I teach at is iBusiness School in, or actually iUniversity, I think that's called. Now they sort of officially rebranded in Madrid and they have this other program called the, um, I think MCXI for short, but it's Masters of Customer Experience and Innovation. And a lot of it is a mix of UX and product management. If I oversimplify their entire program, it really is like a mix of those two disciplines. Wow, that's really cool. That's a neat one too. Awesome. So in addition to teaching the MBA program, you've also helped people by writing a ton of product management books. <laughs> I wouldn't call it a ton. <laughs> I call it a ton because after writing one, I was like, I never want to do this again. But you you have kept at So I think your first book was on design sprints. Uh, yep. Your second book was all about product road mapping, which I recommend mm-hmm. to everybody. I love it. And then the Thank latest you. book is on product research rules. So yes. Can you tell us a little bit about Product research. I know everybody has heard of user research, customer mm-hmm. research, but what is product research? How is it different? Yeah, it, it's sort of like a, it's not an, a different thing, right? It's this whole separate category. It's actually like a mix of everything, right? As a product manager, product leader, you've got to be understanding what your users are doing. So you have to understand some basic user research, but you also have to frame that in the context of a market. And so you have to understand what market research is. How do your I frame this? Is, is this a growing market, a whole new market? What is it? What is it about the characteristics of that market we need to take into consideration? And then combine that with some level of quantitation around if you have a product right now, most product managers are working on it, actively working on a product that's in market that has users that you can measure something, some KPIs around them. So understanding all those, those analytics and then how to put those three things together, right? It's really the mix of those three things that any product manager or product leader needs to understand to be able to do their job. I think. You have some people who are UX researchers and ethnographers, and they're so deep in qualitative analysis, but then you put a spreadsheet in front of them or a database in front of them, they're like, uh, I don't know what to do anything. And then vice the flip side, right? You've got somebody who is just an analytics whiz. They can write SQL till the, till the cows come home. They can do all sorts of you know, great things with Python notebooks you never thought were possible. But then you actually ask them to interview a customer. And they're like, uh, hi, do you like this? So, uh, and so it's like, and I'm, I'm painting extremes here, but you know, the product manager needs to be competent in being able to flip between those two things and be able to understand, okay, I've seen the, the analysis. I've seen what, what analysis you've done, what the data, the quantitative data shows me. Now, how can I, I can combine that with the qualitative insights I have and make the right decision for both my user and my business at the same time? You know, product research just is the gathering of information and trying to synthesize that in a meaningful way. Yeah. I love that framing for it too. Cause I, when I explain what product managers do to a lot of companies who don't get it, I say like your job is to basically synthesize all this data and then figure out what path we should take, right? You're, you're looking at that. And it sounds like that that's what you're getting into with the product <laughs> research. So you've got your market research, you got your customer research, you got your analytics, like you said, but that seems like a lot of work for the product manager. So is it the product manager doing all this by themselves? Are they working with a team? Like, how do you get all that done? Yeah, it's rarely ever the product manager doing it all by themselves. I think you and I both know product is a team sport, right? And a lot of it is you're doing it in collaboration with them. So whether you're a product leader, you might be coaching your team on on how to do this or coaching your product managers, how to think about this, how to frame the problem, how to work with the UX team to go out and conduct the research. But then flip side, making sure you're going to the 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 internal data science and analytics teams to say, hey, this is another question I've you know framed it one way for the UX researchers. I got to frame it a different way. 
for the, the data science or data analyst teams so that they can do their analysis. And maybe it's bringing those together and saying, okay, I see these things happening. I see a trend here or some insights the UX research got, but then does that match up with what we have from the analysts? And are they seeing the same thing? And it might be vice versa. You might, it depends on where, you know, start with the data you have. So it might be actually starting with your analyst first to see anything interesting come up, like what patterns have you seen? Or are we seeing drop-offs in a particular funnel or a flow? And they sort of matching those two things together and then maybe walking across and saying, hey, marketing team, you know, tell me what you've got. What are, what are you seeing for trends in your market? So it's really that team sport of working with all three. So it's rarely ever the product manager doing it all by themselves unless they're at a very, very small startup. Okay. For our product leaders out there, I was just talking about this with our CPO accelerator class yesterday about org design, right? Like what are the different mm-hmm things that you need besides just product managers. So with this, you know, you mentioned the marketing team, which is is standard over there, but you've got the product managers as well. What are the roles do you need to be able to do this effectively? Or what would you recommend for other product leaders who want to start to implement this stuff? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily necessarily think it's about roles, really about skills, right? Because you could have certain roles do a variety of different skills, depending on the size of your organization. So if you're dealing with like, you know, uh, thousand person company, that's going to look very, very different than say an uh, you know, 80 or hundred person company. But it's really, you need skill sets of the ability to go out and speak with customers, do that level of qualitative research, right? So it's that slight ethnography, understanding how to, what's the difference between, let's say generative research, descriptive research and evaluative research, right? Do you understand those three things and what are the differences and when would you want to employ one versus the other, uh, depending on which question you have, right? So that would be one thing from the UX research side. From the sort of analyst side, depending on the type of product you have, like are you a very data-driven product, like a, let's see, like a Zillow, right? Like they've got so much data around homes and that is not just in all of the different numbers around that might tell how many square footage a home, what was it last sold for, what the taxes, you know, all this stuff, but all the stuff around the neighborhoods. And then you've got this, like probably this whole wealth of images about each home, right? So some insights you could, you could probably derive there. So there's a whole bunch of different data there, right? And that might be one type. Do you need a data, uh, what type of data an- analysis do you need or data analyst skills do you need to mine that data and surface some insights? So that could be the sort of, again, so user experience research, some kind of quantitative data analysis. And then wh- where's your marketing team? Like how, how do they know what trends are happening in, in the market? How do they help you understand what is the, the top of the funnel look like for, your, for getting your biz dev team or your sales team leads if you are sales-led or marketing-led or product-led? Like, what kind of organization are you? Like, I'm sure you've probably talked to, I think you did talk to, to ben, about, ben Foster about product-led mm-hmm. growth, right? Yeah. So are you more of a product-led growth company or do you actually need a, a biz dev team in sales? So there's a lot of you know, if-thens and it's always hard to give you a, a straight answer about that, but it's really about the different skill sets you need to be able to do these. Now, you can have one person who can kind of do all of it, right? And as a product person, you you should be able to roll up your sleeves and do some of this, not necessarily yeah. be completely an expert in any of them, but you have to be competent enough to like, all right, I can do this kind of like hack my way through it and get an answer with some relative level of high level of confidence. Sure, there's probably somebody with a specialist who could do a much better job than you. In larger companies, you probably have that luxury and in smaller companies, you probably don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I I think like product managers just need to be able to do those things competently. But (laughs) as you scale, it's maybe like you shouldn't be doing all those things, right? If you if you have the ability to have other people start to get that data. When um, I was working with a lot of the the scale up companies, we started to add one or two like product ops analysts into the Mm. teams, 
once we hit like 10 to 15 product managers. And that helps a lot from the analytics perspective, not so much a user research perspective, but these people were really good at like pulling the financials together and getting the the data out of amplitude to start to synthesize Mm -hmm. it and, you know, start surfacing up insights that way. (laughs) Have you ever worked with any of those types of roles? The product ops role? No, I I don't think I've, at least not in the last five or six years, mostly because I'm going to guess the teams that I work with have been a bit smaller. When I was at Threshold Soil, we were working with some pretty big companies. But after that, I've been mostly in smaller startups that have been anywhere from, you know, five to, I think, you know, a hundred people or more, like in terms of total employees. So my, my experience as of late has been much more in the smaller roles. So getting the a product operations, that's a luxury. Yeah, definitely <laughs> that I, at that point. That I would love to have and aspire to someday. And actually, like my hope is that it, you know, someday at Openly, we will have to pull that role in. But right now, I think we're 80, 90 people. So we're just not there yet. Yeah, you're still working that way. And you were just telling me before too, that Openly, you have to hire now for maybe four product managers. So that's correct. When you're, yeah, so if anybody's listening, <laughs> they, want, yeah. they want a job in Boston. Is actually, it could be anywhere. We're actually, we've gone remote. Oh. The focus is obviously we have a, I shouldn't say focus, the headquarters is in Boston. And there are a handful of people in the Boston area, partly because I think it's spun out of Liberty Mutual, uh, or at least one of the co-founders was from Liberty Mutual. And they went through the Boston Tech Stars a number of years ago. But we have people all across the United States. Yeah, building out the product practice here. They, they've done a really good job in scaling in such a short period of time. But they've been very delivery focused, right? They've been very much focused on like, we just got to do this stuff. And so it's been very project focused and they've done a good job at, at sort of shipping, you know, doing output, but in search of now they're at an inflection point, we're like, okay, we can't, it can't just be shipping more stuff. It's actually, we need to be a little bit smarter about shipping the right stuff. And so then adding more layers of discovery, adding that product practice, I think will be really beneficial for the organization as we, as we scale. So when you're working with an organization who hasn't done this before, like you said, very delivery oriented, mm. where do you start when you came in as the VP of product? Like, how are you shifting them into this mindset of discovery? Part of it is just trying to under like identify where is discovery needed. And of course, you know, the first question is like everywhere, but can you identify a place where like, oh, I can get a quick win around this if I can show them here's where we can do a little bit of discovery and actually get a better outcome, right? I can help the designers and engineers maybe make a better, some better choices or better, a better product that ultimately leads to a better outcome and also framing it away from just make this thing to, well, if we make this thing, the outcome we should see is this, right? And starting to make sure you tie those and connect those dots. Cause I think sometimes, especially in startups, when you're really just trying to get stuff out the door, sometimes the forest through the trees ends up getting missed. Like people just aren't paying attention to like, why, why are we doing this? Oh yeah, we're doing this because like, oh, you know, my boss said so, or we just got to get this thing out. And nobody's necessarily questioning, well, why, why do we have to do that right now? Or how does that connect to a KPI or a particular goal we have? So finding that one small place to show them how discovery can really help them get a better outcome is, and I did that to the, at my more uh, company I was just at at Machine Metrics, similar thing. I was their first product hire, VP of product, coming in to build a, a product practice and organization. Similar thing, it kind of had to come in and say, all right, well, where are we struggling? How can I help figure out where to start? I think it took a little bit, a little bit of time to figure out exactly where to help them out. And they had, they had a designer there kind of like cranking out all sorts of designs, but they weren't getting built. They didn't know what to build. And I was like, okay. I said to the designer, I said, Jared, have you been out and talked to, to customers yet? And he's like, no. And he had been there for like two months. 
I was like, you haven't talked to any customers yet and you've been here for two months. I was like, pack your stuff up tomorrow. We're going to go, we're going to go to factory. The machine metrics makes software for factories. I said, we're going to go, <laughs> go to factory and show them what you've got and just see some feedback. And that did two things for me. One, it, it helped gauge how good was the designer at putting together a prototype for a customer to, to see how he would, he would interact with the customer, but also how would the whole organization react to seeing like, wait, here's something that's not even built yet or in the product. We're actually going to go show it to a customer. <laughs> so, and just seeing yeah. like their level of like, <gasps> but it was one of those things like, okay, yeah, they kind of trusted the process and said, yeah. And they bringing that process of like, oh, getting customer feedback is really valuable because we can make sure we build the right things for them. And I think they had suffered from listening too much, too closely to their customers prior. Like they were like customers said, build me this feature. They would go off and build that feature and they wouldn't necessarily question exactly why or, or think it through, do that discovery process. And that led them to building a bunch of things that actually the one story there is they went off, spent two or three months building this feature or feature set, shipped it. And then the customer didn't like it because it really wasn't what they needed. It was what it was an interpretation of what they asked for. And the customer churned. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was like showing them like, hey, there's another way to do this. And it's not like that. And yes, we listen to customers, but we listen to that with a filter and we don't take what they say verbatim. We have to, you know, kind of peel back. There's a, there's a layers of an onion to what a customer tells you, and let's make sure we peel that back to figure out what the right layer is, and then we can think about how to build something that will solve it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And the the thing that I like about this is, you know, you're in your story, you describe like taking Jared out there and starting to talk yep. to these guys. I have met so many new product leaders, especially new ones, right? who come into these types of organizations and they go, well, I can't do customer research, right? Like I can't do this because our organization doesn't do it. I think the message here that I'm hearing from you and what I try to tell people too, is like, you just got to go do it, right? Like that's your job mm -hmm. as a product leader is to go figure out yeah. what the customer wants. So how do you like navigate that with an organization? Did you actually ask for permission or did you just go out there and do it? I kind of just went out there and did it. I just, I got connected to a handful of customers. I said, yeah, I'm going to go. But the good thing is the CEO is pretty, you know, he wasn't against it by any means. And he was talking to customers himself. To his credit, he actually said uh, the first day, this was a few years ago now, but he said, oh, you know what? We're going to go visit a factory. So we actually went and visited. A so Machine Metrics is headquartered in Northampton, Massachusetts. And one of their one of their early customers was in Gardner, Mass, just maybe about a 20 minute drive up the road. So he's like, yeah, we're gonna go visit them. And so it was great. On my first day, he had me out in a factory talking to customers, right? And it's been hard the last probably year for most product people, because you're kind of stuck in this Zoom, <laughs> in Zoom land, right? And that you have to interview your customers over Zoom. You can't actually go to their, their spaces because to me, for me as a product person, the ability to like see what are the wall, what does it smell like in their, in their organization? What color are the walls painted? You know, are, are there chips coming down from the ceiling? Who interrupts somebody? Like all these things you can't see on a Zoom screen when you actually go to where the customers are, meet them where they're at and just you get more than just the conversation. You really can get a, just, it's such a, from, from my perspective, like I, it's like a sponge. I'm like, I've taken so much and then I can say, all right, now I have a really good sense of what this customer's up against. And I'll just tell you another story. Like at Constant Contact, we went out to this customer. <laughs> she had this, uh, she, she basically ran this little boutique shop in just outside of Boston in Newton, Massachusetts. And we were interviewing her for like basically loyalty programs. And Costacotic was looking at, at how they could expand their email marketing and, and add like a more of a loyalty program offering. Because a lot of people who are on email lists end up becoming members of a loyalty program of sorts, especially for retailers. So we were doing some interviewing with her. And 
we just said, Oh, can you show me like where your office is and, and how you do things? And she did like her whole demeanor just dropped. And she was like, well, she got really embarrassed and she didn't want to take any of us there. And, and then finally, like after enough coaxing, she just said, okay, fine. So she brings us down to this tiny little corner of this damp basement. There's papers everywhere. And there's this laptop that I swear had windows 98 on it. Um, and that's where she wrote her marketing copy and her marketing emails. And like, it was, I was like, oh my God, like there was puddles on the floor. Like it was clearly like this really dungy little place. I could see why she was embarrassed, but that gave us this like, okay, wait a minute. You know, she's on a really old laptop with a small screen. Like we can't be putting all these super whiz bang features with like expecting that our customers are going to have these, you know, 17, you know, 27 inch monitors yeah. or double monitors when they have this tiny little old laptop that they're just interfacing with the web to, to like write some marketing copy, write an email. So that was a really interesting insight that for us, it was one of those like, yeah, the environment matters, right? And that's where it goes beyond just the, it would be really hard to tell that from just over a Zoom call. So sometimes getting out there is really important. Yeah. So what, what would you suggest though? You know, a lot of places are still remote. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to look like going forward. If you can't go out and visit people, what can you do to get some of that off of Zoom? Yeah. And what we actually, we got away from Zoom, although you still probably can use Zoom in conjunction. What we started doing at Machine Metrics, and the reason why I'm, I'll refer to them, because I've only got about a month at Openly so far, but we actually started to use a lot of um, FaceTime and other ways. So we'd actually fire up Zoom for oh, one thing, but we actually started, we asked the, the customers, because it's factory floor, having them take out their phones, fire up FaceTime, and then show us where they were actually like looking at either inside the machines or around the factory floor. So asking them to use their mobile phones more or their iPads or, or tablets to start to give us better sense of just the environment, right? And then that sort of, that helped a lot. And using like, all right, we'd have a Zoom call to maybe help set up and record, but then we'd have them maybe either set up a FaceTime or set up something on a Zoom on their phone. So that like, you'd have that one person might be calling in with like three other phones on the line and they're all like maybe having a camera from their phone pointed at something else on the factory floor. So that was sort of how we started to get over the Zoom only thing. It wasn't ideal, but it certainly helped us try to bring the factory back to us. Love that. I've never heard of anybody doing that. And I I like the fact that your mobile phone is mobile. So you can walk around with it. You can see what's going on there. You can see where where everybody's standing and sitting. That's really cool. Yeah, it definitely helped a lot. I think it it helped a lot for a couple of specific projects that we actually needed to see like what was inside the machine. How is the machine operating? Would we actually be able to do something to the machine if we did something with our software? Like, And seeing all those different things happen in a sort of a quasi prototype test was really helpful. Oh, that's fantastic. Really cool. All right. I love that tidbit. So in the book too, you you write about a couple rules for product research. So mm-hmm. what are the rules we should be following for product research? All of them. No. <laughs> I <laughs> think Which ones can we lose? Uh, yeah. Seriously, there's too many now. No, I think they're like children. You love them all. <laughs> but I think the the first one is probably one of the one of the most important ones for all of us. And you know, I remind myself every day, right? It's prepare to be wrong because you are likely to be wrong. And that's probably one of the most important things come into with that beginner's mindset, right? I could be wrong about something. In fact, maybe go into it proving with an intent to prove yourself wrong. And if you can't prove yourself wrong, then you might be onto something right. That's probably one of the, one of the big things about, you know, it's why I became Shepherd One, I guess. Because when you have that mindset, a lot of things can really flow from that. I'd probably say the other, the other big one is making sure you have a clear research question. This is a lot about like, Product vision. I think that you talked a little bit about that with, with Ben too. A product vision. Right? If you have that clear product vision, you have that clear 
research question, right? It's like a product vision. It gives you a direction. It gives you a key element that you need to answer that question somehow. And you may have a million other questions to answer in service of that large question. But if you have that research question, it is like a guiding light for you to understand. So yeah, we need to understand how customers think about X or how customers react to Y. That kind of research question will help guide you as to where you go next, the activities you do, and et cetera. Then I think we have another one around like, you know, the team that analyzes together, right? It's don't go off and do research all by yourself. Right? Product is a team sport and so should research be. So bring people along, even if you can't bring them for every single moment of every single time, bring them along in the steps of the way. One example that I would use with Design Sprint would be invite the executives to the first part on Monday morning with the Design Sprint, like invite them to that you know, key goal setting and assumption storming, get the assumptions out of the executives' heads, then check in with them again on Monday afternoon once you've gotten some sketches together. And then, and then when you're synthesizing your research uh, from the, the interviews at the end of the Design Sprint, bring some of those executives back in and, and actually show them how like you actually do the final analysis with them to say like, hey, these were our assumptions. This is what we did. And this is what we learned from these interviews. And maybe you can even play them some clips of some of those interviews. And that brings them along, even though they have to spend all 40 hours of their week there, they spent maybe two hours in total and you've brought them along for the ride. So that's another thing to think about is you don't want a team to go off and come back and say, you know, move the search bar to the lower left and you're good to go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And your last rule I really liked as well, which was all about the communication, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you communicate this back to executives, tell people what you're getting at? And that's one of the biggest things I see product managers struggle with. And that's what they ask to, right? They're always like, how do I convince my executives of this? Mm -hmm. What do I do to make them move in this direction? And I think that's, that's the key to actually, you know, having your research be taken seriously is being able to communicate it. So what have you seen worked well, going back to explain it to executives, get buy-in for the direction? Like, what are some practices people can take away to do that? I think if you read a 250-page report, it'll totally work. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, do not do that. Because I did something similar. In the book, I talk about a story that at Constant Contact, we wrote this like 55-page report and, and my colleague, Laura, and I worked our tails off on it. And I think maybe three people in the, in the organization read it. And it was just like, why did we spend so much time doing this? We shouldn't have done it. You know, insights are shared, right? You, how do you share the insights? How do you frame the why around what insights you got from your research? And I think that's probably a couple of key things. And, and another one is making sure that you're also understanding your audience who you're presenting to. If they are busy executives, put the conclusions up front, right? Get to the chase. Don't lay out your evidence and, and then finally get to your conclusion at the end because what if they came to a very different conclusion than you did? That could be a bit challenging. Like, uh-oh, I'm presenting this conclusion, but everyone else thinks a different conclusion. Wait, am I wrong? Like that, that doesn't look good. So cut to the chase and say, we're going to do you know, this. We are going to focus on trying to add uh, new features around calendaring in our app for whatever reason. And here's why we came to that conclusion, right? So it frames, a lot of it is framing why. Why do we get these insights? Why does it help? Why should we do this? How does it help our business move forward? How does it help our product, help, help our customers? Really tying the, all those things together. Yeah. And when, you, when you're going to present this to, I hear like conflicting opinions on whether or not you should do this, but do you ever send like pre-reads to the executives with the presentation so that if they tune out, <laughs> they're not like losing it all? <laughs> is it just, is it more like, no, just do the presentation, you know, in person? Yeah, I've, I've heard both sides of that as well of the, oh, send them. But I think 
If you're going to send them a readable document prior to that, then if that's the case, then don't worry about presenting. Just show up and be like, all right, I'm going to assume you've read it. Mm-hmm. And what questions do you have for me, right? If that's the kind of thing. If I'm going to go through the effort of putting it, or, because the thing about a presentation is you need to be there to explain it, to tell that story and, and help frame the why. With a, a pre-read, you've got to format it in a way that somebody can read it without you there. Or you got to find a way that's going to bridge the two. Like, all right, I'm really going to read this and then I'm going to have to present something. Uh, they're going to come in with a certain I don't know, preconceived notion or they're going to come in primed with something. I can see it working in, in some situations. I can also see it completely blowing up in your face and people yeah. are like, well, I've already read this. I don't need to pay attention to, your, to you type of thing. What I don't suggest doing is repeating yourself, right? How can you do it in a way that if you've got a format that's going to be a readable document ahead of time, make sure it is a readable document for ahead of time, not let's say just a copy of your, of your PowerPoint presentation. And then format and structure and facilitate the meeting in a way that's going to ultimately get your outcomes, right? Are you trying to get buy-in? Are you trying to get a product direction or feature direction to go? What's your, what is your objective beyond just getting, you know, presenting your research? What, what do you want to do with it? And I think having a strong perspective point of view coming into that meeting will be helpful because that'll, that'll say, like, I want to get this out of this meeting and here's how we're going to do it. Yeah. Being very intentional with what you're trying to get after. I like that. So we also talked about right at the beginning of this, when we were diving into the rules, not you, you, being wrong, right? Like being able mm. to be wrong. Mm. What do you have any stories or experience working with an executive, let's say, right? The CEO who does yeah. not want to be wrong. And how do you navigate <sighs> trying yes. to show them with the research that you should go the other way? Yeah, I've exa- I very much have a story about this. Machine Metrics, the CEO, a great guy. I love him. He's awesome. And he's going to do great things for that company. But he's a very opinionated guy. Like anything, you know, strong opinions, strongly held sometimes. But there was this one aspect of Machine Metrics product that he was very convinced that from a reporting perspective, that customers just needed to hook into our APIs and they can go like, you know, push the data they have in our product out to BI tools like Clipfolio or Microsoft BI, Tableau, you name it. And he's like, no, we just need to be better, better APIs. We don't need to do anything in our product. We don't need to build any reporting stuff. So I don't want to build another Clipfolio. I'm like, okay, great. But one of the pieces of feedback we kept getting was, hey, I need a better export. I need a better export. And so we thought, all right, why are they exporting this data into a CSV file? Well, it turns out they didn't have the, these customers didn't have the skill set or capability to one create like connect to the API. They didn't have that skill set in house. A lot of mid-tier factories don't necessarily have somebody like a set of developers that can just do this for them. So a lot of what they were doing was downloading into the Excel, CSV into Excel, and then doing some manipulation, creating a report, and then sharing that report with their colleagues. And they weren't creating anything fancy. These were simple line charts and bar charts. And so we said, okay, we're going to actually go off and build a small reporting function that allowed our customers to basically query the data in Every factory needs has some different KPI and different measurements. So you couldn't create an out-of-the-box report that would work for every single factory. So it's like, let's not try to solve for every factory's case. Let's just create a system that allows the, the customer to, to tailor what they need. We'll give them a couple examples and they can they can have at it. That turned out to be really, really powerful. And it went against like he didn't, but the CEO did not want to do this at all. So I had to distill the information that we that we found from the research around like the CSV. So I had to show them, like, look, this is what they're asking for. And um, we also did a, a product market fit survey. And one of the top things was the reporting wasn't good. So that, that whole question of, you know, 
the people who say, well, you know, I'd be kind of bummed out if your if your product went away. The number one thing they kept asking for was, yeah, we just better reporting. Like, I don't I don't get the data I need. So it was a combination of that survey, a bit of qualitative research, and even just going off and doing a little bit of building something so that we could show them like, hey, this is what happened. And then we actually you know, built it in very, very incremental phases. The first phase was just query it and get a table back. Uh, second phase was like, oh, query it and then be able to save it. Like, okay, not because one thing was they could query it, but they couldn't actually save the report and come back to it again later. <laughs> I was like, oh, but it validated that was the right thing to do. And then our chief customer officer at the time, he basically said, he's like, I can't tell you how much this has helped our onboarding because I just basically tell the customer, show up with your Excel file that you typically report on, and then I'll build it in our product. And he's like, and it totally wows them. So it was a, a good example of how it really did go against what the CEO did think about, but we were able to kind of push it through that because it really did solve a, a true customer need. Yeah. And it sounds like a very classic example of the users trying to solve their own problems, but not knowing how to solve it. So they just ask for, you know, whatever solution makes sense to them, but not right. really. Yeah, and, you know, that's not their job. Like we talk about in product, it's yep. your job to figure out what it is. So yeah, that's a fantastic example of product research at work there. <laughs> yes, it is. And a little bit of negotiation. I think actually that's one of the things, maybe if you're, you know, Someday in the future, when I, I actually can write another, feel like writing another book and you want to write another, we should write one about negotiation for product managers. Oh I think God, that's like yes. a, yeah, exactly. See, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Every time I say that to some, another product manager, they're like, oh my God, yes, we need that book. I'm like, all right, well, who's going to write it? You, me, somebody else? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the influencing, getting into like what we were talking about with the presenting, understanding where the CEO is coming from, trying to show them with the different data. It's so important for product managers. And it's something that, I feel like we overlook so much, but you can do like all the research you want, but if you can't present it in the right way or you can't empathize with people and try to bring them along, it'll never get implemented. Yeah. Yeah. I always advise any aspiring PM, you know, like ask me, what books should I, should I read? Aside from recommending yours, which I do recommend a lot, by the way. I recommend yours too. Well, oh, thanks. Perfect. Mutual, um, mutual relationship mutual. here. But I also recommend Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Oh, um, I love that book. Because it is a great, it's a, one is it's just a great read. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. the stories are awesome. You know, it really talks about the techniques and approach you need to think about for negotiating in really hard situations. And oftentimes in product, like you've got to really negotiate hard and not necessarily like being forcefully. When I say hard, I don't mean like being a jerk or being mean, but you have to like really, you have to win the argument when it seems like the odds are not at your cost, uh, in your favor, just like you do with a terrorist, like terrorist has 12 hostages and they're demanding 10 million bucks. You can't just say, well, I only got 5 million. Give me six. We'll call it a day. Like that doesn't work. And yeah. sometimes that's the same thing in product. Like you need a winner take all kind of approach sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you need that. And, and Chris's techniques are really, are really useful. Yeah. I think that book completely blew my mind when I was reading it. I was like, this is so powerful for people in our craft. So I love that you like it too. Yeah. That's great. All right. So your books, Product Research Rules, the newest book, where can everybody find more about your books? Where can they go buy them? Amazon. Just search for Seat on the Bottom on Amazon. You'll find them like most things. But also I think you can get, you probably find them on O'Reilly too, but I think they just link you over to Amazon. But if you want to know more about me, ctodd.com, um, ctodd.com is pretty straightforward. I usually have jumping points to like either articles I've written or talks I've given, podcasts I've been on, et cetera. And you can always follow me on Twitter where I am C. Todd is uh, probably the place I'm the most active most frequently. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, C. Todd. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun.